5.01 p.m. on Monday, June 16, 2008, inside the stately wood-paneled office of San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom. The mayor himself stands before two of his most celebrated senior citizen constituents, along with a crowd of 50 or so friends, family, and media from around the globe. Mayor Newsom may be the most powerful politician in the city, but today he has relinquished his mayoral duties to do something a little different. Well, actually, very different. That is, preside over a wedding. But not just any wedding. This is the very first legal wedding between a same-sex couple in the state of California. To the mayor's right is 87-year-old Del Martin, with deep-set blue eyes, a shock of white hair, and donning a lavender pantsuit. To his left, dressed in a blue pantsuit, accented by her signature large tortoiseshell glasses and deep coral lipstick, is 83-year-old Phyllis Lyon. The exact time of 5.01 p.m. marks this ceremony's start because this is the very minute that California's Supreme Court ruling overturning bans on same-sex marriage takes effect. So Phyllis and Dell's nuptials may be California's first, but many more will soon follow. During this six-minute ceremony, the happy couple holds hands as they recite their vows, exchange rings, and verbally commit to a life together. Despite the fact that, as of this moment, they have already committed to each other for over 55 years. A milestone that less than 7% of all heterosexual marriages actually achieve, by the way. Now, one might think that half a century is a long time to wait for two people to get married. And it is, especially when you consider that in that time, these two will spend most of their waking hours fighting for gay rights, including the right to legally commit to the person they love, like they're doing right now. But believe it or not, for Dell and Phyllis, getting married was never really in their original plan. No, they just wanted what we all want, to be treated with kindness and respect while having the freedom to live our lives without the fear of prejudice, judgment, or persecution. And at least in this room, at this ceremony, that is exactly what is happening. As the wedding comes to a close, Mayor Newsom speaks directly to Phyllis and Dell. He says, For you have always been destined to enjoy this blessed and extraordinary day. It is my extraordinary honor to pronounce you spouses for life. Phyllis and Dell seal their destiny with a kiss, prompting their guests to erupt with a round of joyful applause and cheers. Shortly after the ceremony, Phyllis speaks to the crowd of guests and media. To them, she pronounces, When we first got together, we weren't thinking of getting married. We were just thinking of getting together. But I think it's a wonderful day. We are very happy. Dell, now sitting comfortably in her wheelchair, follows up seconds later in her own amusing way that most would agree is pure Dell. Her response simply, Ditto. 
After all the festivities, there's no honeymoon or extravagant party. Instead, these two newlyweds will just go home and contently watch some TV with one another. But in the end, it is a wonderful day. A wonderful day for them and for the millions of gay men and women who now have a chance to do something that their heterosexual brethren have been permitted to do for centuries. Legally commit to the one they love. And to be clear, this love story isn't about the legalization of gay marriage. It's about the love between two women who dedicated themselves to one another while at the same time choosing to help others by fighting for what is right and fair in the world. But the path to get to this date is not an easy one. It is shrouded with decades of gender discrimination, societal, cultural, and familiar prejudice, and the pain that comes from living in constant fear of arrest or institutionalization, all for being the one thing all of us should have the right to be, ourselves. I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now. And I love telling real life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. In today's episode, we're taking an inside look at the inspiring and often complex 55-year love story of journalists and tireless gay rights activists, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest real-life love stories. The marriage between Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon is historic in the sense that, yes, they are the first same-sex couple to be married in California. But their real legacy and the path to that celebrated day in 2008 is more on par with many other successful freedom fighters, like Susan B. Anthony, Martin Luther King Jr., and Cesar Chavez. And although Phyllis and Del are far less famous than these three, their achievements are no less significant and come after years and years of personal struggle and sacrifice. That's because when the two are coming of age in the mid to late 20th century, being a lesbian in America is not only unaccepted by mainstream society, it's actually considered immoral and in many areas, even criminal 
a prime example of just how difficult the fight to have equal rights for lesbians and gay men would really be, is illustrated by the fact that it isn't until late 1973 that the American Psychiatric Association's Board of Trustees voted to remove homosexuality from its list of mental disorders. That's right, the prevailing thought by many in the psychiatric and medical communities prior to 1973 is that being sexually attracted to someone of the same sex is a mental disorder or illness no different than being bipolar or suffering from depression. This means far too many doctors at this time feel that when a gay person is in their care, that when given the right treatment, some of those more objectionable sexual thoughts and feelings can and will be eliminated. This pseudoscientific viewpoint towards homosexuality is of course false and forces many otherwise normal thinking lesbians like Dell and Phyllis to be thrown into mental institutions by the legal system or by concerned family members. And once there, subject them to aversion therapies like over-medication or even electroshock therapy, which could then completely erode their memories and even transform personalities. It's no surprise that not only do these treatments fail to remove the patient's desire to love who they want, but would eventually push them into areas of real mental illness that would almost certainly never have existed if not for the treatment itself. The confusion and fear that comes with not being allowed to be the person you aspire to be means that most lesbians in this time are forced to live a life in the closet, hiding their true feelings and desires and innermost thoughts even from the closest people in their life. The suppression of one's true self, of course, also leads many lesbians to enter into a dark world that runs rampant with extreme bouts of depression, drug or alcohol abuse, and even suicide. But luckily, for lesbians and gay men around the world, there are two women who not only find ways to survive and fight these societal injustices, but do so while achieving an over five decade long love affair that will eventually lead to a walk down the aisle for themselves and millions of others just like them. The revolution begins with the birth of a little girl named Dorothy Louise Talaferro in San Francisco, California on May 5th, 1921. Little Dorothy, who will later in life adopt the nickname Dell, thinks differently than most girls pretty much from the start. Dell is made to wear dresses, play with dolls, and push to play hopscotch like many young schoolgirls of the day. But when given the opportunity, she would immediately break away from the assigned gender roles. Whenever Dell and her friends would play her favorite game, house, she always plays the husband. In fact, her desire to play the role of the man even leads her to eventually sneaking into her parents' bedroom and trying on her stepfather's clothes. Although her clear gravitation towards the male gender and lifestyle cut heavily against the grain, 
When it comes to her studies, Dell is every parent's dream. She graduates from her high school at just 16 and is even salutatorian. She then moves on to study journalism at UC Berkeley and San Francisco State University. Even though Dell always knew she was different due to her having an attraction to women at an early age, she cannot escape the prevailing mores of the day regarding finding a spouse, which clearly dictate women are to date men and then marry one. By her third year in college, she's in a committed relationship with a man named James Martin and even gets pregnant with a daughter she names Kendra. The couple settles down in a small town 75 miles south of the San Francisco Bay and enters into a typical post-war suburban life. Although Dell quickly finds her life as a mother and housewife to be rigid, depressing, and unfulfilling so the marriage begins to sour. As it does, she finds comfort in daytime get-togethers with her fellow housewives from the neighborhood. This, amazingly, leads to not one, but two discreet affairs with each of the ladies living next door. Not surprisingly, her marriage to James ends in divorce in 1949, after just four years of marriage. Although Dell keeps her husband's last name for the remainder of her life, she doesn't try to get custody of daughter Kendra. Understanding that in 1940s America, Kendra would be better served being raised by her father rather than a confused, unemployed, closeted lesbian trying to find her way in the world. By late 1949, Dell is able to put her sharp mind and her degree in journalism to good use as she takes a job working for a trade publication in Seattle, Washington. A publication that just so happens to employ another young writer named Phyllis Lyon. Phyllis is born on November 10, 1924 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, though she would be raised mostly in Northern California. Her father is a traveling salesman who also happens to be a conservative Republican and a strict Presbyterian. Her mother, a bit more liberal-minded, still had herself gone to finishing school and is the daughter of a Southern Methodist minister. The middle-class upbringing Phyllis receives does award her the privilege of entering into the world of horse riding, where she becomes a proficient equestrian, collecting many ribbons for her horsemanship. Like Dell, Phyllis is attracted to women at an early age but these feelings prove very confusing as she sees no examples of same-sex coupling in real life or anywhere in the media. She doesn't even know the word lesbian exists. An interesting aside here, the word lesbian is derived from the name of the Greek island Lesbos. Lesbos was the home of a 6th century BC poet named Sappho who wrote extensively about women's lives and her love for women. Thus, the term lesbos, and then later lesbians, was used to indicate woman-to-woman -woman love. And believe it or not, the 100,000 plus residents of Lesbos are actually called lesbians. And in 2008, three islanders, 
who clearly didn't like having their island's namesake associated with gay women, even tried to sue to keep women's groups from around the world using the term lesbian in their names. No surprise, the islanders lost. After Phyllis completes high school, this bright and dedicated student graduates from UC Berkeley with a degree in journalism, while also serving as an editor of the school's newspaper, The Daily Californian. She then briefly works as a reporter in Fresno and Chico, California. Eventually, she makes her way north to Seattle to work for the building trade publication that will connect her with the future love of her life. I want to take a quick moment and speak to some of you struggling online daters out there. If you're tired of attracting commitment phobes, casual hookups, and well, online dating duds, I have the person to help you. And that's Amy Lettingham at amythedatingcoach.com. Amy is a master certified dating and relationship coach who will personally support you through her unrivaled dating profile makeover session. Amy will help design your dating profile by helping you pick the most eye-catching photos and writing the most appealing and authentic profile copy that will only attract the best matches for you. I promise you, there are singles out there who want the same things you do. But to find them, your profile must convey the very best you while at the same time stand out from the rest. Basically, Amy specializes in helping you do just that by creating killer dating profiles that have the ability to add great love stories into life stories like yours. So visit Amy at amythedatingcoach.com and sign up for your dating makeover session today. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Heading into that fateful day in 1949, when one Del Martin enters her office for the first time. Phyllis identifies as straight, so exclusively dates men. But when Del walks in with all the swagger and masculinity of her male counterparts, untapped and exciting feelings begin to percolate inside the mind and body of this inexperienced 25-year-old. Phyllis describes the first moments she sees her new coworker this way. I remember seeing Dell, an attractive, short, stocky woman with dark hair, wearing a gabardine suit, heels, and carrying a briefcase. It was the latter that caught my attention. I had never seen a woman carry a briefcase before. She was the most handsome woman I had ever met. A short time after their initial meeting, at a party thrown by Phyllis to welcome the newcomer, Dell's curious persona continues to fascinate her new co-workers. Instead of hanging out in the living room with the other ladies from the office, Dell is in the kitchen with the guys, smoking cigars and drinking whiskey. Stranger still, she is having the men teach her how to tie a necktie. Over the ensuing weeks, Phyllis and Dell would become fast friends often going out for martinis after work. Then one day, Phyllis would learn firsthand why her new coworker seems to act and look so different 
than the rest of the women she knew. Phyllis would later write this about the night that seems to change it all. Dell and I and another woman decided to go and have a cocktail at the press club. We were sitting there yakking and somehow got on the topic of homosexuality. I had no clue about lesbians at this point. I had never even heard the word. My other friend, Pat, didn't know any more about the subject than I did. Finally, one of us asked Dell, how come you know so much about this subject? She said, because I am one. This aha moment when Phyllis realizes she's not only working with a lesbian, but is attracted to one, also serves to release a reservoir of suppressed and contradictory thoughts and memories buried away deep inside her mind. About this, she later says, When I thought about it, it explained a lot about the fact that I had been really attracted to women in high school, but really didn't have a clue as to what that was all about. I thought about women in high school, and I used to think how nice it would be to feel another woman's breast, but I know I can't do that. Why worry about it? Some months later, after the initial meeting, with Dell now out of the closet, so to speak, she and Phyllis find themselves sitting on the couch in Phyllis's apartment. Sensing something is happening between the two, Dell leans in and kisses her coworker for the first time. No longer can Phyllis suppress that desire to touch another woman's breasts. This night would mark the first time she has sex with a woman. But despite their chemistry both in and out of the bedroom, there's no mad dash to love for these two. For the first few years, their relationship is surprisingly casual, and of course, completely hidden from all but a few close friends. And I think it's important to note that when the two become lovers in the early 1950s, it is the height of McCarthyism and the anti-communist purges that took place in the US government and around the country. It is a time that will be known as the Lavender Scare. The name Lavender Scare was coined to describe the purges of gay men and women from the federal government after an executive order issued by President Dwight Eisenhower establishes that so-called quote-unquote sexual perverts could not receive federal security clearances. Basically, law-abiding gay men and women for no reason at all are thought to be national security risks and communist sympathizers. So if you're working for the United States government or even working in corporate America or at the corner store, being gay or just the accusation of being gay can be an occupational death sentence. Because of this, it is super important for Phyllis and Dell to keep their new relationship on the DL since just the innuendo of them being lesbians could cost them their jobs, not to mention many of their family members, their friends, and much of their future. That's why when they do travel together at this time, whenever they get a hotel room, they make sure to always get double beds and never show any kind of PDA in public. Still, as their feelings grow for one another, Dal asks Phyllis to move in with her. 
But Phyllis, who is somewhat unsure of her newfound identity as a lesbian, declines the invitation. It seems that Dell is all in, but Phyllis? Well, she wants things to remain the status quo. Then, the future of their relationship becomes very much in doubt when Phyllis leaves Seattle altogether and accepts a job in San Francisco. Over the ensuing months, they see each other a few times and exchange love letters, but there's still no real commitment. And although some of Dell's friends tell her to give up on the seemingly non-committal femme fatale living down in the Bay Area, it is one love letter that changes the course of their lives forever. Phyllis writes this letter while sitting looking out at the Pacific Ocean. In it, she describes her desire to be with Dell full time and how she wants to give a committed relationship a go. She invites Dell to move to San Francisco and officially take a shot at a life together. Knowing that there's something special about this tiny, quirky redhead with the big glasses and the big IQ, Dell drops everything and leaves Seattle to be with Phyllis. So on Valentine's Day in 1953, the couple moves into an apartment on Castro Street. And I should point out that even though today the Castro District is one of the epicenters of the American gay community, back in 1953, it is primarily a working-class Catholic neighborhood. It isn't until the late 1960s, early 1970s, that it starts to become one of San Francisco's, and America's for that matter, first gay neighborhoods. As one might imagine, the transition from unattached girlfriends having a good time to a committed couple living under one roof does come with its stumbling blocks. Like Dell keeps leaving her shoes in the middle of the living room, which annoys the more tidy Phyllis to no end. When finally Phyllis loses her cool and sends the shoes on an unplanned trip into the backyard, well, it sure doesn't help bring the couple any closer. Later, Phyllis would somewhat good-humoredly explain how they managed to get through these tough times. The first year was pretty stormy. While we had been close friends for three years, living together was something else. At some point, a friend gave us a kitten. And I've always said that what kept us together that first year, we couldn't split up because we couldn't figure out how to divide the kitten. Another big problem is the conflict that arises when they try to define gender roles in their relationship. At first, they try to model themselves after the only type of relationship they both really know, a heterosexual marriage. Basically, they mimic what their parents did. For example, Phyllis tries to make Dell's breakfast each morning, as that is what her mom did for her dad. This lasts all of a week before she gives up. In reality, both of them like to cook, so that is something they decide to share. As for many of the other more standard housewife duties like washing dishes or cleaning the house or ironing clothes, well, neither of them like to do those. So they decide to leave them for whichever one of them will do it. They soon realize that 
definitive gender roles of any kind just don't work for them. In this interview on NPR's Fresh Air, Dell and Phyllis explain their relationship in a more nuanced way. Phyllis starts off by saying, We were still a butch femme couple in public, since Dell had decided when I met her, she was a butch. I didn't have much of an option, so I became a femme. I've often thought I would have made a really good butch. And besides, I did all of the butch kind of things, if you will. I mean, I drive, and Dell doesn't, and I can drive a nail, and she can't, and, you know, stuff like that. But we conformed to what the going thing was outside the home, but didn't do it when we were at home. Dell then chimes in in a less verbose, but no less informative way. Yeah, I was a sissy butch. So over time, their roles in the relationship morph into something more suitable for them. Something that may not work for everybody else, but works for Dell and Phyllis. Simply, they're equals. They both have strengths and weaknesses and likes and dislikes. They each bring something different to the table that helps the relationship function and grow. So neither has to play the part of a man or a woman or a butch, or a femme. By 1955, things in their relationship improved so much that they decide to move on from their tiny apartment and purchase a house together. This is the home they will live in and share for the rest of their lives. When it comes to Dell and Phyllis's social life, well... This is where things get a little complicated for the young couple, since society isn't quite ready to see two women in love out in the world. This means that socializing with others is limited to just a few options. They have two gay male friends they often double date with and go out to the bars and restaurants, thus pretending to be two hetero couples about town. There are also small intimate gatherings with either open-minded heterosexuals or other lesbians. And if they're feeling especially adventurous, they might hit a lesbian bar. As for this latter option, although it is not illegal to own a gay bar or to patronize one, it is illegal for any patron to have physical contact, like dancing, or sexual contact, if they're the same gender. Believe it or not, it is even illegal to dress in the clothing of the opposite sex. Because of these archaic laws, there are often police raids on these bars where customers are arrested for crimes such as illegal immoral acts, sexual impropriety, disorderly conduct, or vagrancy. Newspapers would even sometimes print the names of these offenders and the cops would use the collected personal information to notify landlords, employers, or friends and family of the violations. This ill-fated notoriety often means that some of those arrested would lose their jobs, their apartments, even their families. Sadly, many aren't able to accept the unjust consequences that come from doing little more than going out and having a good time. 
they end up facing bouts of depression and even thoughts of suicide. For Phyllis and Dell, the fear of arrest and the uneasiness that comes from knowing you don't really belong eventually keeps them from attempting to be part of the gay scene. Instead, they decide to go in a different direction. If they can't go safely into the gay community, they'll simply bring the gay community to them. So in October of 1955, with three other lesbian couples, they create a social club, or as one of the founding members would describe it, a secret club for lesbians. These eight women could gather together in the comfort of one of their homes and socialize without fear of incarceration or judgment from the outside world. About their desire to create this intimate assemblage, Phyllis would later say, We were looking for a safe place where we could meet other women and dance, talk, and play cards. An alternative to the gay bar scene. At first, their regular meetings are exactly what they're set out to be, social gatherings. But soon they realize they should really be organized. This group shouldn't have to just sit on their couch and hide from a world that refuses to allow women like them to live the unrestricted and happy life they deserve. They quickly elect Dell as their president and focus on educating people about lesbians, while at the same time reducing the self-loathing and discontent forced on lesbians who try to make their way in these hopelessly repressive times. They name their group the Daughters of Belitis. Belitis an homage to the Songs of Belitis, a lesbian love poem written by French poet Pierre Louise in 1894. Dell and Phyllis didn't know it yet, but they had just created the first social and political organization for lesbians in the United States. For the next 14 years, their organization fights for equality for gays and lesbians in the workplace, in the courtrooms, in housing, and in the medical establishment. About the decision to take their group in this direction, Dell would later say, Back in those days, we realized that we were considered illegal, immoral, and sick. So, those were the issues we took on. We were fighting the church, the couch, and the courts. Together, Phyllis and Dell also launched The Ladder in 1956, which becomes the country's first nationally distributed lesbian magazine. Over the next decade, during the day to pay the bills, they both work as journalists and at night turn their attention to the daughters of Belitis and their cause. In an amusing aside, when the daughters of Belitis held their national convention in New York in 1964, they are thought to be such a subversive group that then-FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, who just so happened to be a closeted homosexual, by the way, puts the organization on his must-watch list, thus tries to have his agents surveil the convention. But the ladies do such a great job of keeping the location a secret that the FBI agents can't figure out where it's held. Then, in a rare public relations snafu for Mr. Hoover's PR machine, the New York Times, who does manage to find out the location, 
writes an inspiring article about it. The Daughters of Belitis eventually lose their steam, and the group formally disbands in 1972. But that is not the end of Dell and Phyllis's fight for all human beings to be treated fairly. Around this same time, the couple publishes the book Lesbian Woman, a book that includes case histories and personal experiences that document lesbian attitudes, lifestyles, and the challenges of living in a heterosexual social structure. This is followed up with the book Lesbian Love and Liberation, The Yes Book of Sex, published in 1973. They then go on to become the first lesbian couple to join NOW, the National Organization for Women, which, believe it or not, had previously kept lesbians like Phyllis and Dell out. But their life together isn't always about the fight for what's right. Sure, they bonded heavily over their cause, But in their spare time, they both love to drink their martinis, traveling, especially on cruises, going to movies, or just spending a quiet night at home reading a book. But the most unique thing about their relationship is their collective selflessness. Yes, they loved each other, but there was also still plenty of love to go around, especially for those desperate souls in need. This is demonstrated by the fact that before cell phones came around, and despite their notoriety, Dell and Phyllis always had their phone number listed in the phone book, in case any young or terrified LGBTQ person needed help or support. And they fielded dozens of these calls over the years. Their hearts, lives, and careers were inexplicably tied together sharing a dedication to fight for fairness and equality for all, and did so with humor, strategic vision, and just plain common sense. It's fitting, I think, that this amazing couple who fought for the rights of others for so long are called to be the first gay couple to experience what it feels like to be married in the eyes of the law. So on that June day in 2008, After a lifetime of struggle, sacrifice, and a desire to right a wrong, they finally did get to say those two magical words that heterosexual couples have been saying for centuries. I do. But surprisingly, this is actually the second time they say I do to one another. That's because technically, their 2008 wedding was not their first one. On February 12, 2004, San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom ordered that marriage licenses be given to any same-sex couple who requested one. This despite the fact there was no California same-sex marriage law at the time. So Phyllis and Dell were once again front and center and have a wedding in the same city hall room in front of many of the same people, even wearing the same clothes they wear in 2008. Not surprisingly, later that same year, the California Supreme Court calls the move illegal, thus voids their marriage along with everyone else's. Hence, why they do it all over again four years later, after a statewide same-sex marriage law is finally approved. Sadly, the joy and happiness that normally follows a new marriage does not happen for Dell and Phyllis. 
because just two months after their wedding, on August 27, 2008, with Phyllis at her side, Dell passes away at the age of 87 after complications that come from a broken arm after a recent fall. To honor the civil rights trailblazer, Mayor Newsom orders the flags at City Hall to be flown at half-mast. About the loss, Phyllis would later say, Ever since I met Dell 55 years ago, I could never imagine a day would come when she wouldn't be at my side. I am so lucky to have known her, loved her, and been her partner in all things. Then when asked what the secret of their 55-year love affair was, she humbly responds, There is none. It's persistence and doing things together. And love. If we had a secret, we would have written a book about it and made millions of dollars. We love each other. We have similar interests. As for her final resting place, Phyllis, along with Dell's daughter Kendra, and some friends and family, take Dell's ashes and scatter them at the mouth of the Russian River, not far from where she and Phyllis rented their first place together all those years ago. Phyllis remains living in the house she shared with Dell for 12 more years, until April 20th, 2020, when she too passes away at the age of 95 after years of suffering from dementia. And I think Del Martin herself identifies the couple's legacy best when, in 1984, she says that their most significant contribution was, quote, being able to make changes in the way lesbians and gay men view themselves and how the larger society views lesbians and gay men. That is true. Del and Phyllis did just that. But they did something else, too something that so many of us just starting out in life hope to achieve. Find that person, that one person, that one love, who gets you more than any other person on earth. Someone who makes you better, who makes you laugh and cry and feel in a way no one else does. Then you commit to one another so you can spend the rest of your lives together and you know what the best part is? If you're one of the lucky ones, like Dell and Phyllis were, who gets to see all this come together, that no matter if you're gay or straight or trying to change the world or not, your love and commitment to each other just made the world a better place. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. 
Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on our various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories.